It is predicted that we will have 10 billion people by 2050. And one of our greatest challenges is how we are going to be able to feed this growing population. The key here, though, is how can we do this in a sustainable manner? Because the way we feed our population today is not sustainable. And in fact, one of the main culprits of this problem of sustainability and climate is raising animals. The UN reports that 14.5% of emissions comes from animals, and this figure is only growing as nations become wealthier, and they therefore begin to eat more meat. Raising animals is also one of the leading causes of deforestation. But killing animals for food isn't only a sustainability problem. It's also an animal cruelty problem and health problem. In fact, most of us aren't even aware of the fact that we treat animals worse than we treat the most heinous criminals in the world. So if you buy into the philosophy that ignorance is bliss, then this episode is not for you. In this episode, I speak with Paul Shapiro, the CEO of Better Meat Co., which is a company that has created an alternative to animal meat that is made out of fungi. This fungi-based meat is more sustainable, healthier, cheaper, and arguably better tasting than meat. And perhaps best of all, it does not involve the killing of any animals. And that's right, it's made out of fungi, not plants. And you'll learn more about why this innovative approach is going to change the way we sustainably feed the growing global population. Paul has led Better Meat Co. to raise over $10 million in funding and has an employee base of 16 people. Paul is also the author of the book Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner in the World, and a four-time TEDx speaker. He's also the host of the Business for Good podcast and a longtime leader in the food sustainability industry. In this episode, you'll learn how Paul raised two fundraising rounds that totaled more than $10 million in less than three years, how Paul thinks about networking, and how you can tear the psychological barriers that are getting in the way of accomplishing your dreams. This is Julian Alvarez, and I'm a Gen Z entrepreneur and software engineer at Facebook. You're listening to the Inventing the Future podcast, where we introduce you to the entrepreneurs and ideas that will inspire and empower you to solve the world's biggest problems. So with that, let's go ahead and dive into the conversation. Paul, welcome to the show. Julian, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me on, man. Absolutely. Super excited for this talk. As I mentioned, this is one of the interviews that I most enjoyed doing the research. So I hope to blow everyone's mind with what you have to share. But yeah, so to start off, I think it would be great to hear just a bit of your story and how you got interested in both the food industry and why you then decided to make this ridiculous decision to become an entrepreneur. (laughs) Yeah, it is a bit of a ridiculous decision. I joke around that when you start your own company, you will sleep like a baby because you will wake up every two hours and cry. And that certainly has been the experience of many people I know. But it's also quite exhilarating, lots of ups and downs. But to answer your question directly, Julian, I have long been very concerned about the way that we produce food for a variety of reasons. One, it's extremely inhumane to animals. I think that the way that we treat farm animals will be looked on by our descendants as something that was truly barbaric and repulsive. Two, today we got like 8 billion of us almost walking around the planet. And another 30 years or so, there'll probably be 10 billion, barring any catastrophe between now and then. So we are going to have another 2 billion people on the planet, but the planet's not getting any bigger. 
Our footprint on the planet is getting bigger, but the planet itself isn't getting bigger. We're not going to be farming the moon. We're not going to be farming Mars in the next 30 years. We have one celestial body to farm, and we're already destroying it. And a big portion of the footprint that we leave is through our food print, principally in the amount of meat that we eat, because it's no longer any secret that raising animals for food just takes a lot more land, a lot more water, a lot more greenhouse gas emissions, and a lot more resources in general than eating from the plant kingdom. So the problem is that we're eating more meat today than ever before. Even with the explosion of interest in plant-based meat and so on, meat consumption continues to rise, not fall. And so when you consider the fact that it is an extraordinary thing that we're doing to animals, extraordinarily bad thing that we're doing to animals, and you consider that it is helping to drive climate change and deforestation and biodiversity loss, pandemic risk, antibiotic resistance, and all the other things that we already know are associated with raising and slaughtering lots of animals for food, we need to come up with better ways to feed humanity into the future. And so that's why I wrote my book, Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner in the World. And then after writing that book, I decided that rather than chronicling the people who I thought would save the world with food technology, I would just become one of them myself. And that is why I started the Better Meat Co. And so I'd love to dive into the Better Meat Co. a little bit later on, but I want to take a moment to highlight some of the problems that you've mentioned and explore more of that problem space. So you talked about it a little bit, but yeah, let's expand on that. How would you describe the set of problems that are involved when it comes to food? You mentioned some things like animal cruelty, sustainability, which is related to both the climate as well as just what we can actually produce in the planet as we have the growing population. And there's probably other things there like related to health and whatnot. But yeah, how would you paint and describe the picture of the problem at large that you and many others are trying to solve? Well, rather than just letting me paint it, let me say this. The United Nations just put out a report. It's called Preventing the Next Pandemic. And they list the top reasons that will be the likely cause of the next pandemic. Number one on the UN list, increasing demand for animal protein, because raising and slaughtering billions of animals for food increases the risk of our having another pandemic. Number two on the list, intensification of animal agriculture, meaning we are combining and confining lots and lots of animals into tiny little spaces. So I'll put it this way. Think about how we raise chickens for food. Nearly all the chickens that we eat in the United States are crammed together, wing to wing, inside of windowless warehouses by the tens of thousands living in their own feces with no sunlight. And when it comes time to take them to slaughter, most people don't want to hear about what happens next. So that is pretty much a viral Russian roulette where you have filthy, unsanitary, stressful, overcrowded conditions where 10,000 animals or tens of thousands of animals are all confined together. And that leads to the perfect conditions to amplify a virus. And so many are concerned, including the World Health Organization and the United Nations and more about the factory farming of animals and whether it could incubate the next pandemic. We already know, for example, that the 2009 swine flu, H1N1, which killed hundreds of thousands of people around the world, was almost certainly born out of a North Carolina pig factory farm. We even know that the 1918 pandemic, sometimes falsely called the Spanish flu, actually almost certainly generated from a chicken farm in Kansas. So 
Raising animals for food is a major threat from a pandemic prevention perspective. It's also the number one user of antibiotics. We know, for example, that overuse of antibiotics leads to antibiotic resistance. And much of our entire medical establishment is built on having useful antibiotics so that when you get a cut, you're not going to die from an infection. Rather, you can use antibiotics and kill whatever pathogens might be in there that could harm you. Well, because we are routinely doping farm animals like chickens and pigs and cows with antibiotics, we are oftentimes depleting the usefulness of those antibiotics. Now, these animals are not being given antibiotics because they are sick. They're being given them to promote growth and as sickness prevention because we force them to live in these extremely stressful and unhygienic conditions. And so the antibiotics help them to live and endure these horrible conditions, and they also promote growth. So the factory farms have a strong incentive to use them. So for whether you're concerned about wanting to have functional antibiotics in the future, whether you're concerned about wanting to prevent or reduce the risk of the next pandemic, whether you're concerned about the horrible treatment of animals who were raising for food, and numerous other issues, which we don't even need to get into, but numerous other issues, we all have to agree that we just cannot continue raising billions of animals for food. It is not sustainable, it's not humane, and it's not good for humanity or the rest of the planet. So then the question becomes like, what do we do? It's almost like realizing that fossil fuels are a problem. Well, what do you do? Do you just tell people to stop driving? Tell people to stop flying? Or do you want to, let's say, build fossil fuel-free types of energy, like wind and solar and geothermal and more? And if you're going to do that, how do you do it so they become cost-effective and can actually compete? Well, the same is so in the factory farming world. Yes, fossil fuels are such a problem. You want lots of alternatives. Well, factory farming is such a problem. You want lots of alternatives. And I would love it if people would be happy to do the equivalent of stopping driving, which would be basically just eating bean and rice burritos and enjoying lentil soup and hummus and other great plant-based options, which I think are wonderful. But we got to play the cards as they're dealt. Humans seem to want to eat meat. And because of that, we got to create a meat-like experience for them. It's almost like you think about when you flick a switch, right? You want light in the room. You want to illuminate the room. You want the experience of a lit room. You're not really thinking about whether it's coming from fossil fuels or whether it's coming from renewables. The same is so with meat. Many people want the experience of meat, but they would be quite happy to get it if it didn't involve the slaughter of animals. And so I actually think most people eat meat not because animals were slaughtered for it, but really in spite of that fact. And they would be quite pleased if we could divorce the meat experience from animal agriculture altogether. So that's what so many of the companies in this space are working on, is trying to recreate the meat experience in the way that fossil fuels are trying to be replicated or entrepreneurs are trying to replicate the experience of using fossil fuels, but with more sustainable and renewable forms of energy. Yeah, that's amazing. So many pillars, which just touches on the magnitude of the problem and all of the dimensions it hits on. And it's crazy to learn that the conditions are so terrible that it requires antibiotics just for them to be able to survive. That's very telling. Yeah. And something that stood out to me when I was listening to your TED Talks is when you mentioned that the best day of an animal's life is the day they get slaughtered, because that's really when the suffering ends. And I think from my own personal journey, I myself am a pescatarian, and it's primarily for health reasons. And I know there's an added benefit of the climate footprint and the animal cruelty component. But the thing is that the animal cruelty component was never at the top of my mind, just because just like almost everyone in the world, no one knows what is going on behind the scenes. Like you hear about it, but 
without the actual conception of what's happening, your actions aren't influenced. And most people operate on the principle that ignorance is bliss, which is one of my sayings that I hate the most, (laughs) which (laughs) is why I think it's important to hear these. Yeah, blissful for who? I mean, not for those who are suffering. So I'll just put it this way, Julian. Think about just how we treat pigs. In the United States right now, as we speak, there are millions of pigs who are locked inside of cages that are so small they can't even turn around. They're basically in their own coffin. They are in a cage that is barely larger than the volume of their own body. They can stand up and lay down, but they can't turn around. They can't walk. And they're in there, not temporarily, but they're in there for essentially years on end, years of immobilization. Now imagine if we were to do that to murderers or rapists, the most heinous criminals get better treatment than the treatment of pigs on factory farms. And why? Did these pigs commit some crime? No, of course not. They were simply born into the wrong species. They weren't born human. Because they're not human, we subject them to literally lifelong abject torture. Now, I don't use those words lightly. I don't try to be melodramatic in this, but just imagine the outcry if somebody was found to be taking golden retrievers and putting them in crates so small that they couldn't even turn around for years on end where they develop pressure sores from laying in the same position all day long on concrete, you would be charged with felony animal cruelty. But because the victims aren't dogs, but rather are pigs, it's not only a common practice, but it is the norm throughout much of the industry, both in the United States and around the world. So again, the point is not to become melodramatic. The point is not to depress anybody. Most people, though, when they hear these type of facts about the realities of how animals are raised for food, generally start to turn off. So I don't really like to talk about it that much, but it creates a lot of cognitive dissonance. And most of the time when people are confronted with cognitive dissonance, they get busy proving why it would be right for them not to change, as opposed to actually letting facts change our behavior. Normally, we commit to a behavior because we've been doing it, and then we justify it when people question it. But I would just ask that we consider whether or not the lifelong torture of these animals is really worth it. And presuming that we think that it isn't, what can we do that will actually lead to the cessation of this type of a system? And I believe that food technology is what's going to bring us there, just in the same way that reducing the cost of solar panels is going to be helpful toward reducing our reliance on fossil fuels. Going to grow meat without animals is the pathway forward to a better relationship with the planet and the other animals who we share this planet with. As we segue into the more positive light, I think something that's important to keep in mind is that the highest form of empathy is to meet people where they already are. And people have an addiction to meat. And I mean, it makes sense. It's delicious and tastes really good and whatnot. But the thing is that, as you said, if we can recreate that experience, Without the cruelty, that is really what is going to cause the change to occur. It's kind of like with sustainable energy, as you said, most people are willing to or some people are willing to pay a premium if the energy is renewable. But at the end of the day, most people just care about cost. So it's the same here. And I'd love to hear how your company, Better Meat Co., is actually tackling this problem in order to create an alternative that is sustainable and effective and even healthier. I'm eager to talk about it, Julian. I just want to affirm what you're saying. I totally agree with you. And what people are looking for is the meat experience. 
Similarly, for a long time, the only way we had to get ice was out of a lake, right? That was the only way. We had a huge ice industry, which was built on harvesting big blocks of ice that had naturally formed in northern latitudes and then putting it in insulated boats and shipping it all around the world to where people who were living in warmer climates couldn't get ice. Well, enter the advent of industrial refrigeration and all of a sudden you had a way to cool the water down right in front of you and make ice. Now, it's the same experience that people are getting of getting ice, but instead of being made in nature, it's made through human technology. But the experience of ice is what people wanted. They didn't care whether it was formed by nature or formed by human technology. They just wanted ice. And so that's what we're trying to do is to create a meat experience that is just created through human technology rather than coming out of an animal's body. So what we here at the Better Meat Co. are doing, we're a startup that's based in Sacramento, and we use fermentation to subject common ingredients like potatoes and convert them into meat-like products within less than one day. So if you think about it, like it takes before a cow is ready to be slaughtered, well, the cow may not be ready, but before the farmer is ready to slaughter the cow, it's generally about 14 months and maybe two years if the animal is grass-fed. A pig, you generally slaughter at about five months. A chicken, you slaughter at about 40 days. But with us, we are harvesting our microbial protein in less than one day, less than one day. So through our fermentation system, we can feed in common ingredients like potatoes, subject them to this fermentation, and less than a day later, you've got actual products that look and taste like animal meat. And so that's the premise of what we're doing. And we sell it as a B2B ingredient to food companies so that they can make animal-free meats and create a market that will hopefully be able to compete not just on taste, but also on cost with animal-based meat. Let's take a step back really quick and look at the alternatives that exist and where your company fits into that. So from my understanding, and please fill in the gaps, there's three main, I guess you could call them verticals. The first one is just plant-based alternatives. And these are like your Beyond Meats and Impossible Burgers, where they're trying to replicate the experience and taste of meat by using plants. That's the first. Then the second one is the clean meat alternative, which you wrote a book about that basically touches on using cells in order to be able to grow and reproduce this animal. And then you have your vertical that you're in, which is essentially taking fungi, an entirely different kingdom. And yeah, what is the reason behind that? And what else would you fill in the gaps there with those three verticals? Well, first, I'm impressed by your knowledge, Julian, so my hat's off to you. As you can see, it's actually literally off to you right now. But yeah, so people think about the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom, right? So animals have flesh that tastes like meat. Plants don't have flesh that tastes like meat because animals and plants are really far apart on the evolutionary scale. And so in order to make a plant taste like an animal's meat, you have to do a lot to it. You've got to mill it into a flour, then you've got to fractionate it so that you can remove the fiber and the fat so that you concentrate the protein in there. Then you take that protein powder and you subject it to a process that's called extrusion, which basically heats it up very high and it essentially through a series of pressure and heat changes causes it to puff out and become more like an animal protein in terms of its texture than a plant protein. However, there's another kingdom altogether, not just plants, not just animals, but as you pointed out, Julian, there's fungi. Now, fungi are not plants. They are a completely different kingdom. But when you think about animals and plants at these very far ends of the spectrum on the evolutionary tree, you've got fungi in between them, but it's not in the middle. Fungi are not in the middle. They are right next to animals. So fungi are so much more like animals than like plants 
that they breathe in oxygen, unlike plants, which breathe in CO2. They don't photosynthesize the sun like plants do. Like animals, fungi go out and look for the food and then digest it. And so they're much more like animals. And that's why mushrooms have a much meatier texture than plants do. I mean, in fact, for centuries, mushrooms have been used as a meat replacement. So when you're dealing with fungi, you're just starting at a much, much easier place because the natural texture of these fungi is already much more meat-like. So what we do is we use a special kind of fungi that we subject to a special kind of fermentation that at the end of the fermentation already comes out like meats, that we don't have to mill it, we don't have to fractionate it, we don't have to isolate it, we don't have to extrude it. It comes out of the fermenter and literally the only post-harvest processing step that we take is to remove water. That's it. And just through the simple act of removing water, you have a product that really does a great and convincing job of mimicking animal meat. Yeah, so I guess the way it would work, let's see if I understand this correctly, is you're taking fungi through a fermentation process, and you're basically giving them food like here, fungi eat this potato that we're giving you. And the fungi is consuming that digesting it and growing and then you use that in order to harvest it. Yeah, that's exactly how it works. So just imagine that you feed a chicken corn. And that chicken consumes the corn and digests the corn and puts on flesh on his body. Well, and then you eat the chicken. That's what we're doing, except these little microscopic fungi are our chickens. And what they do is they convert starch into protein. So they eat a starchy food like a potato and they convert it into protein. So you're taking a product like a potato that's typically about 1% protein. And within hours, you are converting it into something that's closer to 45% protein. And that's the magic of using fermentation because you can really rapidly transform these common ingredients into something that works much better for you. Definitely. Okay, interesting. So in terms of producing this, I can see the advantages in that it's quicker to grow. The process isn't as intense as going from plant-based to a meat-like texture. But how would you describe the value proposition for the consumers? Like if I was to eat a plant-based meat, for example, versus this fungi-based one, what's the difference? Sure. Well, first and foremost, I like plant-based meat, so I hope that you will eat it. <laughs> but in addition, this is meatier. There's no getting around it. This has a meatier texture than does extruded plant proteins. So if you want something that is more similar to the meat-like experience, I believe that using these fermented fungi is actually a better way to do it. Additionally, we can actually get much cheaper eventually than plant extrudates are going to be because we're serving up a whole food. When you're dealing with, let's say, pea protein, a pea on its own is usually only about 20% protein. So then you got to fractionate and get rid of the fiber and the fat, as I said, and concentrate down all that protein to get it to that place. Well, what we're doing is just harvesting a whole food. And so on a cost basis at scale, we will be cheaper not only than plant-based meat, but even animal-based meat. So I believe that right now, already from the sensory experience, we are already superior. But at scale, we will be economically preferable as well. Hmm. So is that why, like, is the scale the main limiting factor? Or like, if this already works, and it's a better alternative, why isn't it more mainstream? Like, is the limiting factor there, the scaling, the cost, the public perception, or maybe a combination of things? Well, there's a few problems. One is that you have to scale this and it's capitally intensive, right? So fermenters aren't cheap. You need to buy a lot of stainless steel. What we're doing is taking a natural process, wrapping stainless steel around it, 
and then letting it do its thing. Well, the problem is stainless steel isn't cheap. You got to buy these fermenters and you need gigantic fermenters. We're talking about fermenters that are the size of office buildings here in order to get to the type of scale where you're really going to be competitive on cost. So you're talking there are tens of millions of dollars per facility. So that's one problem that is a hurdle to overcome. It's not an insurmountable hurdle, but it's a hurdle. Another is that we are dealing with a world that is almost like a wild west when it comes to fungi. So think about it like this. Animals and plants were domesticated a long time ago, and we have selectively bred them for lots of very valuable to us traits. So we've bred animals to lay lots of eggs or give lots of milk or grow really fast. We've bred soybeans to have all different types of functionalities that we like. These are domesticated species. The fungi that we're using are wild. There's no domestication. There's been virtually no selective breeding whatsoever. So you're dealing with an unoptimized system where it's like we're just scratching the surface of what it means and really what can be done with these. So that's an entirely new process that it's going to take. Now, you don't have to use genetic modification, but you do have to start selecting in the same way that you select animals to become different breeds of dogs or you select plants to like you might select chickens to either grow big and fast or chickens to weigh lots of eggs. We need to engage in that work. And that takes time and money to do, too. So those are two of the bigger problems that are preventing the rapid scaling of this type of technology. I also think that many of the people in this space have been really focused on plants because there's just so much more that's known about plants than fungi. Fungi are this mysterious thing. It wasn't even until the last few decades where academic institutions even started putting fungi outside of the plant departments. They have like these departments of plant biology and fungi were just in there, even though they're completely different from plants. So fungi are a bit of a mysterious world and it's going to take more study of them in order to figure out how to optimize their best uses for humanity here. Well, that's good. You're leading with that innovative research and solution that many people still don't know a lot about. And by the way, as something interesting for people that want to learn more about fungi, there's this great documentary called Fantastic Fungi that I watch and it completely blew my mind. <laughs> it gives you like an overview on the fungi kingdom. And there's also great interviews with people like Paul Stemmitz on Joe Rogan's podcast and things like that. But as a quick fun fact, there are like eight to 10 times more species of fungi than there are of plants. So that just tells you how big the universe is and maybe how little we know relative to it. It's such a good point, Julian. And I loved that documentary. I too recommend it. And I'll just say a lot of those fungi species, like we haven't even named them yet, let alone figured out what uses they might have. So we've got a, a long way to go, a long way to go here. Cool. A lot of opportunity. One really quick question. How can people try out your product since it's primarily B2B? Yeah. Well, we have what we call a core line of products, which are based on plant proteins that we sell to various companies for them to use as ingredients, including Purdue Farms, the major chicken company. They do a product line called Purdue Chicken Plus, and it's 50% chicken, 50% plant-based, and that includes our plant protein ingredients in there. And so those are sold at supermarkets across the country. Now, on our fermented fungi protein, which we call Riza, that's R-H-I-Z-A, it's Latin for root, that is not yet commercialized. We just finished construction of our demonstration scale plant here in Sacramento, California. And as we commission this plant, we will begin to start selling it. But it's not yet on the market. But if somebody is in Sacramento and you want to swing on by, we'll welcome you to come on by and we're happy to give you a taste.
<laughs> I'll have to make the trip, but that's a good incentive. Menlo Park isn't that far, Julian. You can come on up here. We'd welcome you. We'd love for you to be here. Oh, I'll make the trip. I'm excited. Good to be in this area. But cool. Very exciting. So I want to um, transition now more into your experience as an entrepreneur from a higher level. And I want to start more with the mindset and adversity side of things. So I'd like to start by asking you if you could tell me about a time in your entrepreneurial journey where you felt like giving up or during a time where you felt at your lowest or there was an incredible challenge where nothing seemed to work. Like during this period, what was going through your mind and how did you manage to persevere through that? Yeah, well, I can tell you, Julian, I've never felt like giving up, but there have been many times where I've wondered, was I right to do this? <laughs> it's very hard. One of my favorite memes is of this guy who he looks like he's probably like 75 years old. And he says, owning a small business is great. I'm 38 and I've never felt better. <laughs> and so I do joke about that pretty often. But there have been many experiences that I've had. And I'll give you one as an example where when we were a really small company, a really small company, we had only four people working here one of whom was a co-founder and she and I had started this company together and there was a crisis that she had in her personal life that led to her no longer being able to work at the company and she had to move away and to have that experience it was like you know is this going to be like a near death experience for the company here to lose a co-founder at this stage when we were so small and i was extremely stressed i had been planning on going on a trip with my wife and my parents and I canceled that trip because it was just not going to be possible. My wife was still went on the trip with my parents, by the way. So good thing they get along. But I stayed behind to try to figure out what like the succession plan was going to be like and try to figure out how we were going to get a qualified person in to fill that role. It's a really essential role. And thankfully, we did get a really wonderful person who for the last two plus years has now been doing a great job of helping me run the company and she's truly stellar. So for me, I try to have an Obama type mentality where you're cool when you're up and cool when you're down. But what I'm looking for is if I see a problem, I immediately go to start thinking about what the solutions are going to be. I don't like to lament to the heavens. I don't like to say, woe is me. I don't like to sit there and be depressed. What I like to do is to think about what are the solutions to this problem so that I can keep moving forward and achieving our goal of reducing humanity's footprint on the planet. And in that particular case, that meant interviewing a lot of highly qualified people for this position and seeing how quickly they could get here and leave their job. And you know, in the case of the person who we hired, she was somebody who was at a large organization who was overseeing 200 people in her role there as a vice president. And here she was coming to a now three-person startup that didn't even have an office at that point. And so it's tough to attract talent when you have very seemingly little to offer aside from hopes and dreams. But I'm grateful to her that she did come on. And again, for the last two plus years, she's been doing a really stellar job as an executive at our company. Yeah. Well, I think what I've noticed for myself, which I'm sure like from the story you're telling is a similar experience, is that when you have a mission that's so grand and powerful and meaningful and purposeful and potentially massively impactful, the challenges, the problems, the setbacks that come along the way are just road bumps because the mission and the journey ahead is so massive that you realize that it doesn't matter how hard this is and how many setbacks I have. 
when something matters this much, you do it even if the odds are not in your favor. So I love to see that being manifested. Yeah, that's a really good point, Julian. I like the way that you put it. It kind of reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite, very scholarly philosophers, Rocky Balboa, who said that in life, it is not about how hard you can hit. It is about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. And that is how winning is done. And I think about that. Sure, it might be from some cheesy movie, but it's meaningful to me. And I think about that when I get hit. And I hope others will too. When you fall down, the question is going to be, do you get up or do you lay there and say, woe is me? And I want to surround myself with the type of people who are going to get up and keep on going. You know, I was watching the Olympics and I was watching the 1500 meters or the women's 1500 meter race this week. And these women were running so fast. It was unbelievable to me. And one of them, this Dutch woman fell during the final lap and she fell down on the ground. And most people, they fall, that's the end of their race. These races are determined and within like less than one second of di difference between the runners. But this woman got back up, continued running past everyone in the field and won the whole race after falling. And she didn't just like trip. She was laying on the ground and she won the entire race. And you wonder like, would she have won if she didn't have that motivation from falling? I don't know. Maybe she wouldn't. She wasn't near the front of the pack Well, that time that she fell. So I don't know. Maybe adversity can help make us stronger and help us achieve things that we wouldn't have achieved if we hadn't faced it in the first place. Wow. It's a powerful story. I think the only way to guarantee failure is to stay on the floor. But if you get up, you at least have another shot at it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like that. The way to guarantee failure is stay down. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the only way to actually lose. Cool. Paul, so... I want to move into some entrepreneurial lessons really quick, and I want to start with fundraising. So in doing research, I saw that you funded the company in May 2018, so not too long ago. And less than a year later, literally 10 months later, you raised $1.6 in your pre-seed round. And then more recently, about a year ago, you raised $8.25 for your seed round. So I'd love to hear some of the major challenges that you face during this process and what you think the keys to achieving these successful fundraising rounds were for you. <laughs> well, they were very, very different rounds because that first one that you mentioned, Julian, the 1.6 million, that was a friends, family and fools round. So 90% of startups fail. And so these early investors are really gambling. They are really gambling. And so that's why they're typically only people who really believe in you. That's why I call it friends and family, or as I call it, friends, family, and fools, because you're basically saying like, yeah, I know that the odds are 90% against me, but I'm still going to take this bet. And so those are people who are basically investing in you. Like those people are investing in a jockey, not a horse. And so I went to the people who I knew and who I'd worked with for years and told them about my idea and what I wanted to do. And I was very, very blessed that many of them not only had the means to assist, but really wanted to deploy those means. I think many of them were investing in me and I'll never forget that. Like that to me makes the stakes much higher for me that this company, at least originally, was funded not by a bunch of VCs who are expecting to lose some of their money and they're going to make it big on some other Facebook or Google type investment. But these are people who I'm going to see for the rest of my life. You know, it's my friends and family. So I feel like a special obligation to succeed because it's not just like you're losing some portfolio manager's fund that they expected to lose or that they thought they were likely to lose. So that's one on the first round. 
On the second, we had a lot of challenges because the pandemic occurred during this round. And while at first, like there was hot investor interest in our space, when the pandemic hit, people just clammed up. They were not investing in anything. And that was a real problem for us. And so it extended the round much longer than we had anticipated. The good news is overall, the round ended up being oversubscribed and we had to increase the cap on it. But overall, it still took a lot longer as a big problem. And thankfully, after the pandemic continued dragging on, people did start to resume to make more investments. And that was good for us. So the pandemic was a real hardship for our company. It continues to be a hardship for our company. But we now are looking to raise our Series A round, which will be our next round in the fourth quarter of this year, where we're going to raise many times more than what we've already raised to date. So we got a long way to go. We need to raise more cash in order to build this full-scale plant so that we can have, as I said, like an office building-sized fermentation facility. We can produce a river of Riza to flow through the food industry and help reduce our reliance on animals for food. Yeah, that's exciting to start getting to the scale stage, which is now possible given what you've been able to prove so far. One quick question with the pre-seed round. I mean, I think raising 1.6 million at the beginning is pretty insane. Most people don't have the network or people in their network with the resources. Would you say that building this network throughout your life was key or how did you even convince these people to be able to do that, to invest in you? Yeah, it was absolutely what you just said. It was like 20 years of having a network of people in my life who had worked with me and would believe in me. So it included a couple family members of mine, but that was a, a very small portion of the raise, to be honest with you, like maybe about 10% of it. The rest were people who I knew who were essentially people who had disposable income, who were accustomed to making donations to charity. So I, I knew a lot of people who were making pretty large investments in charities that they supported. So imagine if you are an animal welfare advocate and you're donating a hundred or two hundred or more thousand dollars a year to an animal welfare charity whom you're getting no benefit from. You might get a tax write-off, but that's it. Now you could say, okay, well, this company is going to try to achieve the same goal that the charity I'm giving to is, but I'll actually own some equity in this company. And rather than a tax write-off, I'm getting a potential return on this investment. So that I think was compelling was that I had a large network in the nonprofit space of donors who were accustomed to giving away money in exchange for basically nothing. So for them, they could give away money to a company and that's going to do the same thing or maybe even do more for their cause and give them at least a chance of a return on their investment. Yeah, man. Build your network before you need it, people. That is yeah. the key value there. <laughs> Two more questions before we close off here. So the first one is, if you could teach all young entrepreneurs one concept, whether it's related to life or entrepreneurship, what concept would that be? Your barriers are largely mental. You think that you can't do something because your mind is telling you that you can't do it. Look at the people who have succeeded in building these really wonderful companies. Nearly none of them had the experience that you would think they would have needed in order to make it happen. Most of them had no experience whatsoever doing this. In my own space of alternative protein, I look at some of the companies that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars, and they're founded by people who had no business or science experience at all. They just want to make a difference in the world. So I would stop putting the mental barriers on yourself and get out there and do it. Don't paralyze yourself through just analysis. 
Lots of people are like, oh, I need to read a million books on this. If somebody wants to learn to play soccer, do you think they go read a million books on how to play soccer? It's like, no, they start playing soccer. And I'm not saying it's bad to read books about playing soccer. I'm sure they're useful, but they're a supplement. They're not what you do before you start playing. So I'd get out there on the field and actually start playing and just go do it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I always think back to this mindset where most barriers in life are psychological, not technical, but the mind can easily get in the way for what you want to achieve. And the way I think about learning is that I focus first on the experience. And as you said, focus on learning whatever is most valuable to me based on what I'm executing, not just because it's going to serve me the most, but also because that learning is going to be reinforced through the experiences that I'm having that I could directly apply. So love that. So final question for you, Paul, what impact do you want to have in the invention of the future? How will you invent the future? I believe that just in the same way that we relied on gelatin film for a long time to capture our memories. And now we've switched to digital and it's much better. We get the same experience of capturing our memories, but we get it in an instant with very improved functionality. I remember actually when one hour photo came out, I was stoked. I was like, I can't believe we're getting out our photos in one hour. This is amazing. Now imagine that it took one minute. Think about it. If it took one minute to get your photo, you would be outraged, outraged. And, you know, it's instant. Well, I think the same is going to be so because of what we are doing with meat. That in the past, we associated protein with a hunk of flesh from a once living animal's body. In the future, we are going to have a vastly more diverse portfolio of proteins to choose from, including microbial proteins, animal cell culture proteins, plant proteins, and more. And it's going to provide for a much more interesting culinary experience for people it'll be a much smaller footprint on the planet and it will free us from the absolutely horrible things that we're doing to animals as well. So because of what we are doing to invent new methods of creating a meat-like experience for humanity, I think that we're gonna be better off in a multitude of ways and that we will look back, not only in revulsion at the ways that we used to raise animals for food, but we will think, I am so glad we don't do that anymore. In the same way that people look back and say, I'm so glad that we don't light our homes with whale oil anymore, that we don't have to go out and hunt whales, or I'm so glad we don't exploit horses to transport us around anymore. I'm so glad we left that in the past. People are going to say, I'm so glad that we are not subjecting chickens and pigs and turkeys and other animals to the types of things that we used to do to them just in order to enjoy meat, because now we can enjoy meat in a much better way. Yeah, it's a beautiful vision of the future. Love it, Paul. Awesome. Well, yeah, as closing, where can people find you, learn more about you and your company? It's very nice of you, Julian. If you're interested in my book, just go to the website cleanmeat.com. Again, that's cleanmeat.com. Love to hear what you think of the book. As well, if you want to learn more about the Better Meat Co., we're online at bettermeat.co. Again, that's bettermeat.co. And welcome hearing from you anytime. Cool. Appreciate it, Paul. Well, thanks for coming on. I love what you're doing. And I cannot wait to not only see where the company goes, but to also try (laughs) to actually try the meat sometime soon. But cool, Paul, thanks for coming on. This was awesome. And I appreciate all the wisdom and the inspiration that you've instilled in us. Thanks so much, Julian. Great to talk with you. And I will very much be looking forward to your trip out here to Sacramento. Cool. Awesome. Let's do it. Awesome. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Take care and be infinite as always.
Hey guys, three quick footnotes here before closing off. So the first is, did you enjoy the topics discussed in this episode? Well, I invite you to join the Slack community for this podcast, where we'll keep the conversation going by engaging in discussions related to the episodes discussed in this podcast. Here, you'll be able to engage in conversations with me and other listeners. And if you really enjoy this podcast, it is likely that you would relate well with other listeners that also enjoy the podcast. In this community, you'll be able to meet, engage, learn from, and potentially collaborate with the like-minded entrepreneurs that listen to this podcast. Let's invent the future together. The second quick note is if you are interested in receiving updates on new episodes, I invite you to subscribe to my newsletter. And in this newsletter, I'll also share notes, insights, wisdom, tools, and strategies that are designed to help you become a better entrepreneur and live a healthier, fulfilling, and more productive life. And finally, the last footnote is that you can follow us on social media accounts to get updates on new episodes and engage with invaluable content related to entrepreneurship. And also, we have a website now. You can go to inventingthefuture.ai for detailed show notes on all the episodes. So the links for joining the Slack community, subscribing to the newsletter, the social media accounts and the website can all be found in the show notes for this episode. So with that, I would like to wish you a day, week, year, and life filled with an abundance of love, energy, and prosperity. Take care and stay infinite, my friends.